The following program is part of the Inner Circle Podcasting Group. Go to innercirclecomics.com for more high-quality podcasts. This podcast is brought to you by the Eisner Award-winning Legend Comics and Coffee in Omaha, Nebraska, and by listeners like you. Go to TwoHeadedNerd.com and click Donate Now to become a supporter. This is Mac Wilson. I am a DJ for 89.3 The Current with Minnesota Public Radio in St. Paul, Minnesota, and you are listening to The Two-Headed Nerd with Joe and Matt. Sort of, sort of break it, break it down like this. Broadcasting simultaneously from Chicago and Omaha, Nebraska, it is my pleasure to welcome you to episode 223 of THN, where we're talking comics and nerd news for the week of Wednesday, September 9th. My name is Matt Baum. That is at Matt Baumstein on the Twitter. When I'm not insulting women's looks because I'm an entertainer, and that's what we do. I'm writing the Comic Speculator blog for WorthPoint.com. And I'm Joe Patrick. That's at JoePatrick116 on the Twitter. And when I'm not wishing a happy Patriots Day to all the losers and haters, Donald Trump excluded. What a dick, I'm the right? <laughs> I'm the former manager comics and coffee in omaha nebraska this week you're going to hear our reviews of headlopper number one and tyson hesse's diesel number one after that we're going to review 10 of this week's new comics faster than we can brainwash stephen colbert during the ludicrous speed round and then was it the thn sanctum sanctorum where we sit down with lord Voldemort to learn how to properly pronounce his name and find out what he's excited to read next week and finally joey and i will dig deep into one listener's burning comic question when we play Ask a Nerd. It's all happening, kids. But before it does, let's all apologize to the person we made fun of for picking Gronk in the first round of their fantasy football draft. And then we can talk about this week's big news. Imagine a Superman story, but from Martha Kent's point of view, or a Spider-Man story from Aunt May's. This is the premise of Raising Dion, a comic book and short film from writer-director Dennis Liu and artist Jason Piperberg. Nicole is a single mother raising her super-powered seven-year-old son, Dion. Life's hard enough keeping up with the bills, let alone trying to keep track of her son's invisibility, plasma powers, and telekinesis. In order to study his progress, Nicole films her son 24-7 with the help of her friend Pat, an aspiring filmmaker. But when Nicole starts to notice mysterious men tailing her, and with Dion's developing abilities constantly changing and becoming more powerful, she must find the courage deep within herself that she can raise Dion on her own. With Raising Dion, Lou set out to subvert the old dead parent trope in comics. Speaking to The Guardian, Lou said, quote, I always thought it'd be interesting to do Batman, but from the point of view of Alfred. What if Alfred doesn't do it right? Or Superman from Martha Kent's point of view. If she doesn't do it right, what does he become? To promote the comic, Lou used his experience as an accomplished music video and commercial director to create an amazing short film that acts as a trailer for the series. Did you see the film? I did. It was very cool. It's great. You can download the first issue for free right now on Indie Planet or purchase a print copy of the issue. All proceeds from the print sales go directly towards funding future issues. Matt, I watched that video. I got a little misty. I won't I won't lie. No, I did too. I, I did too. I just downloaded the comic. I'm going to have a review of the first issue for next week's show. Putting out a fully realized, acted, scripted, and soundtracked uh, trailer for your comic book sounds like a great idea. Why doesn't everybody do it? <laughs> I assume it costs money. <laughs> That's, I mean, it's very cool, but it seems like sort of a backwards way to do it. You know what I mean? 
like generally you put out a comic or whatever and it gains some traction and they go hey we're gonna make a tv show out of this or we're gonna make a movie out of it i think it's a really you mean uh you mean head lopper guy doesn't have like a crew of cinematographers at his beck and call mclean i can't speak for him i don't know he very well may but most of these guys don't i thought the short film was amazing and oh it's so my good. guess is someone says we're making a movie out of this asap just based on that and just the way that everyone reacted to it i i did think it was interesting that a lot of people reacted they're like wow she's an african-american single mom it seems to be resonating with people a lot more strongly yeah because of lou's choice to make nicole and dion african-american uh because it's speaking to to people on a whole nother level and it'd be like a starring african-american superhero which we're not going to get until like what black panther next year or yeah. 2017 or something like that it was a very cool short film you can find it everywhere online go watch this i'm excited yeah, just, to read the comic as well i i think you should make it your main just review. google raising dion you'll jump right to it yeah when i watched the film at first i didn't realize there was also a comic book uh but when i looked it up to write this story i saw hey he's giving it away for free you have no excuse not to check it out and if you love it, throw that guy four bucks. Yeah. Buy I had no a, idea there was a comic copy. involved. I had no clue. Yeah, I thought he was just trying. I thought it was just like a cool short film. Yeah, or trying to like get a movie made or something like that. But I really hope that this connects with people because it's such a rarely seen idea, especially in superhero fiction. You know, the idea of a single mom, let alone like a single African-American mom raising a superhero I just I love it when people take these time honored, well worn ideas and put a spin on them, like Mark Wade with Irredeemable and stuff like that. You know, like what if Superman was evil? Yeah, it's really cool. (laughs) Valiant Entertainment is set to bring their super team title Unity to a close this December, but instead of going out with a blockbuster finish, they're wrapping the series up with an oversized all comedy special, which, if you've been reading Unity, it's a pretty damn serious book. Following up on the earth-shattering events of Book of Death, which, with a title like that, does not suggest comedy, Unity number 25 (laughs) will feature stories from regular Valiant creators alongside some of the best writing talents in comedy, including Matt Kent, James Asmus, Donnie Cates, and Elliot Rahal, The Daily Show's Elliot Kalan, Kano, Daniel Kibblesmith, from The Late Show, Stephen Colbert, Michael Cooperman from Tales Designed to Thrizzle, Ty Templeton, and more. I've heard of Tales Designed to Thrizzle, but I don't think I've ever checked it out. It's awesome. Plus, the comic book debut of comedian and radio host Tom Sharpling from The Best Show, which I love. From their press release, Valiant writes, quote, New York Times bestselling writer and Valiant superstar Matt Kent presents the final chapter of his acclaimed two-year run on Valiant's premier super team. And then, all-out chaos ensues as Valiant says goodbye and passes the reins to an all-star lineup of writers, artists, and humorists to chronicle the unusual, the offbeat, and the never-before-seen tales of the team that became a legend in their own time. The one and only, Unity, Joe. Do you think this is an odd way to wrap up a series like this? And what's your opinion of comedy issues for normally serious titles? Yeah, this is a weird way to wrap up a series, but kudos to Valiant for doing something different and for going out and getting some pretty popular comedy writers to pitch in. How do you think the conversation went down when they went to famous public radio host 
Tom Sharpling and said, hey, would you like to write a story about, oh, I don't know, Quantum and Woody? Well, <laughs> Sharpling's a nerd. Ninjack. <laughs> Sharpling is a nerd, and I th- he talks about comics and stuff. He's definitely a nerd. Some of these other guys, I have no idea. I can only assume that Kent came up with the idea and has hookups with these people and went, yeah, f- it. It'll be weird. <laughs> you know? Maybe. But yeah, it's different. It's certainly different. The tone of the, that book is so serious. Like right. completely serious, earth shattering stakes are so high that like, you know, reality lies in the balance. And now here's a funny issue. I okay. <laughs> I don't, so you have to you have to figure Well, I don't know. The way it's worded, it makes it sound like there will actually be a proper finale in the book, and then like the back half of it will be all jokes. That's my guess. Or the issue before is the conclusion, and then they have this extra issue with funny stuff. For, just lot. for fun. Yeah. As far as like comedy issues in general, you know, there's a there's a difference between a book that is definitely a comedy all the time, like Howard the Duck, and a book where the, all of a sudden they just decide to do wacky things, right. but it's the same normal writers. And they are often hit and miss. Like um, when What If used to do it all the time, like once a year or something, they'd put out their very serious What If books, and then there'd be one comedy What If where it's all jokes. Right. Howard the Duck is the Punisher or something. Yeah. And it's all, you know, it's cute, but like Jason Aaron, I love you, but maybe comedy is not your forte. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I'm just using him as an example. I don't know that he was involved, but you know what I mean? Right. Right. Like, I don't know. I'm not sure what a Matt Kent comedy comic would look like. Yeah. Uh, Uh, (laughs) I mean, we're going to find out, I guess. Maybe he's branching out. Maybe, you know, he's tired. So I think it's great that Valiant went out and got some actual well-regarded humor writers to pitch in on this thing. Yeah, definitely. But nobody puts Matt Kent in a corner. That's for certain. Yeah. We'll see if it translates to uh, like hilarity. I, I, can't, I can't wait for that uh, gut busting Toyo Harada <laughs> uh, yarn. <laughs> that wacky Shadow Man backup. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, Marvel Comics has a long and storied history of trying to expand one off goofs into marketable ideas. And now the grand tradition is being revived in the form of. Gwenpool. Boo. <laughs> the Gwenpool concept, a mashup of Gwen Stacy and Deadpool, appeared as a gag on the Chris Bacalo cover for Deadpool's Secret Secret Wars number two as part of a month-long series of Gwen Stacy-themed variant covers. I guess that sort of makes some kind of sense. <laughs> Inexplicably, however, Marvel has decided that this is a thing, and now Gwenpool will star in a three-part backup story beginning in Howard the Duck number one before receiving her very own holiday special in December. The talent involved in this mockery includes writers Christopher Hastings, Jerry Duggan, and Charles Soule, along with artists Daniel Bayruth, Langdon Foss, and Guru Hiru. Guru Hiru. Now, Matt, I barely tolerate the themed variant months because being able to choose a cool cover for your comic is one thing. And what do I care? But this this is too much for me. And what the hell is with the sudden fascination with Gwen Stacy these days? She was never that interesting. No, and you know how this works. It's just right now, 
Marvel is in the middle. Like every month is another theme. Like right now we're living through hip hop month or whatever, where it's like, yeah, they're doing hip hop record covers with your favorite heroes and crap. But who knows? Somebody on Tumblr fell in love with it. They retweeted it a million times and they went, that would translate into at least 100,000 sales. Let's make a mini series. That's all this is. That's all this uh, is. It's like if they suddenly decided they were going to take the um, the variant cover from Art Appreciation Month a couple of years ago. Right. That had all the different Wolverines playing poker <laughs> and made a comic book out of that. It's dogs playing poker, you idiots. I think I've already read that one, honestly. I'm pretty sure that happened. <laughs> it's stuff like this that makes it very, very obvious uh, when Marvel is manipulating you. Oh, well, <laughs> like yeah. Marvel Marvel is absolutely trying to trick you guys. But if it sells, who's to say they're wrong? Go nuts, you crazy kids. There you go. That's the big news for this week. If you'd like to discuss these stories and everything we missed, hit us up, the THN forums, where Joe recounts what would have happened if he was swinging to save Gwen. And guess what? He's in Weber. He just lets her hit the water. It's just like he said, she's not even that interesting. She's more interesting dead. <laughs> she's definitely most, more interesting dead. It's the most interesting thing about her. Every week, the Gwen Stacy hating Joe Patrick posts the question of the week in the THN forums. For you nerds to... I prefer to think of myself as the Doc Ock to your Aunt May. Uh, for you nerds to wrap your sticky little fingers around. Joey, what are we asking the listeners this week? This week's question comes courtesy of the one and only Elise Wisdom, who asks, What nerdy thing, be it a movie, comic book, TV show, video game, whatever, had a great premise, but completely failed in execution? Oh... I see. Now, Matt, do you think we can expand that to mean things that we were really excited about but ended up being completely terrible? Yeah. No, I mean, that's what she's asking, basically, right? Yeah, yeah, I suppose so. You have until this coming Friday, September 18th, to get us your answer. You can call and leave a message using Skype. That's what we're doing. Skype panels, two-headed nerd, all one word. Or you can call the Ziggurat hotline, 402-819-4894. And if you're feeling fancy, you can even send an MP3 to twoheadednerd at gmail.com. But whatever you do, keep it short. Two minutes or less is the ideal. Matt will cut you off. You know it's true. He's done it to all of you. Uh, I ain't scared. If you need more time than that, feel free to write your full answer in the question of the week section of the THN web forums. And then tune in next Thursday to hear you and your fellow listeners on the THN Answer of the Week podcast. It is review time. THN, where Joe and I are going to rap about long-form storytelling and extreme decapitation. Joey, what'd you read this week? <laughs> That's exactly my the subject of my review. <laughs> this week, I'm reviewing Tyson Hesse's Diesel number one from Boombox with story and art by Tyson Hesse. Here's your solicit. Deandra Diesel isn't very good at anything. The daughter of the late Tungsten Diesel, she has yet to live up to her father's great reputation. Her childhood rival has inherited control of her family's airship and left Deandra the only job she's qualified for, picking up the trash. But all that changes when a mysterious flying engine crashes into Diesel's life and takes her on a journey through the skies. As I mentioned last week, I'm a fan of Hesse's webcomic Boxer Hockey, a comedy about an absurd professional sport and the group of childhood friends that play it. So when I saw his name on Diesel number one, I knew I'd have to give it a try. The title character is kind of a well-meaning idiot 
She's not fit to take the reins of her father's airship. Everything she invents explodes. She barely pays attention to the one job she's actually capable of. For some reason, she also has some kind of ability to channel electricity into small bursts, which she uses to fire tin cans from the side of the airship. Meanwhile, you've got the hot-tempered Captain Wells, who barely tolerates Dee's presence. In contrast to Dee, Cap is very capable and is the one who took over for Dee's father, which adds a bit of tension to their relationship. There's some banter between Dee and Cap, as well as the other supporting characters. It's clever and it's funny, as Dee bumbles around the floating city causing trouble. Hesse shows us more of the world as the issue progresses. We learn a bit about the Diesel legacy and what Dee's father meant to Peacetown, which is the name of the floating community of flying rocks. Then the action kicks into high gear and several things happen that I didn't fully understand. There's a big environmental disturbance with some exploding lightning. There are some flying chickens with jetpacks. Maybe things will become clear as the story goes forward. I don't know. But the characters reacted to the events in a way that sort of made me feel like I was missing something. Hesse's art is a great mashup of Don Bluth, Brian Lee O'Malley, and Miyazaki. There's a definite animation influence at work. And I really enjoy Hesse's character and background designs. His illustrations are beautiful. Overall, I thought Diesel Number 1 was a cute all-ages adventure comic. And the story looks like it's going to be a lot of fun. I do trust that the things that I didn't quite understand in the closing pages will be explained. And it gets points for staying just shy of the steampunk divide. <laughs> Nobody's got a monocle on. I'll give there you are that. no top hats. I'll give you that. No stilts. <laughs> I'm going to give this a buy it. Even though, you know, it was, uh, it was kind of cute and a little bit slight. Uh, I thought it was beautifully drawn, and I think it would be. I think a kid would dig it. I can't give this a buy it, and I, I agree with you. The art is beautiful, absolutely gorgeous. But I felt like the story, like I just lazy is not the word I want to use. Confusing isn't the right word either. Like I kind of felt like they went, ah, eh, we'll just throw this stuff in, and we don't really need to explain it because you know it's for kids. Which comes off kind of like, well, wait a minute. It did kind of meander. Yeah, and I just didn't get it, and I couldn't tell if it was lazy story writing or just not very good story writing. You know what I mean? And, like, when everything else, the rest of the package looks so nice, the story sticks out as, like, the one big problem. So I can only give this a skim it, because by the end, I put it down, and it's just like, what the hell did I just read? (laughs) <laughs> you know, I just had no clue. I mean, I, I see what you're saying, but I don't know that it's necessarily attributed, got to be attributed to like lazy or poor storytelling. He he chose consciously, I think, to spend most of the issue showing the world, showing the cast, explaining the background of uh, the the father and and the struggle between D and Cap. And so that by the time there is any actual forward momentum of the plot, it's kind of unexpected and not very clear. Which is, I'm, I mean, I got to mark that up to bad storytelling. I, I honestly, I, I just, I can only give this a skim it. Very pretty to look see, at. But if I'm a kid, even, I might be like, what the hell just happened? Whatever, old man. <laughs> what did you review this week? This week, 
I read Headlopper. Number one, from image written and drawn by Andrew McLean, 96 pages for $5.99. It was, it was way thicker than it was, I was expecting. It was huge. Andrew McLean doesn't care what you think. He says so in the afterword of this giant size first issue of Headlopper. According to McLean, he wants to write long fights, dark jokes, creepy atmosphere, short plots, and long plots with comfortable conclusions. <laughs> It's a refreshing take on monthly comics, only Headlopper is not monthly. It's quarterly, and we just have to deal with it. This is the story of Norgal, a shirtless mountain of a man, perhaps more Viking than barbarian, with a giant sword, equally giant white beard and mane of hair, and the talking head of a witch that plagues him at every turn. The first thing you'll notice is McLean's art and perspective. Every scene of action is cranked to 11, with huge panels featuring giant monsters and unreal badass swordplay. His art style reminds me of the animation house style of Adventure Time meets Mike Mignola. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. Like Adventure Time, Headlopper doesn't take itself too seriously and never gets bogged down in hefty, old-timey Viking dialogue, but does tell a compelling story that's serious enough when it needs to be. When we first meet the Headlopper, he's decapitating a giant sea monster that's been plaguing Castle Bay, a small island that's been besieged by monsters led by a dark magician. After killing the serpent, the local clergyman asks Norgal if he would consider the job a charitable action, but instead, the headlopper takes an expensive jewel from the priest. Later, when the priest complains to the queen mother of the new child king, headlopper is asked to slay the magician that leads the monsters attacking Castle Bay in sort of to, you know, cool everybody's jets, if you will. <laughs> There's several subtle twists in the plot that guide an otherwise simple story of a man that cuts off heads, and I really enjoyed where this ended up. I love the long-form story here, and I'm more than willing to wait three months for the next quarterly adventure. This issue was packed full of violence, fully realized characters, great art, and just solid, good Viking fun. I want a headlopper sketch, and I want it now. I love this character. I'm giving this a huge buy it. Totally agree. I was not like I. I knew I'd probably enjoy it just based on the preview pages I saw. But when I opened that thing up, and it was almost a hundred pages. Yeah. <laughs> not in like a way that made you feel bogged down. Not like oh my god, is this comic over yet? Because he takes the time. He needs to let the art tell the story in that very Mike Mignola way where you might have three pages of Hellboy falling down into the pit of hell with no words. You know, it's just like, look at the art, let it happen, let it paint a picture for you. Yeah, really Head well Lopper paced. Lopper did that. The pacing super well paced. perfect. Yeah. I thought it was funny. Uh, it's super violent in a very comical way. So, yeah, it's gory, but it's kind of Kill Bill gory. Yeah, it's cartoon violence. It's like old school, like Bugs Bunny type violence almost with more decapitation, I guess. Well, yeah, with the spraying jets of blood. Yeah, like Simpsons <laughs> violence, if you will. Uh, it's, yeah, it's like itchy and scratchy. It's an itchy and scratchy cartoon. Totally, totally. I, I thought this was amazing. And for six bucks uh, for 96 pages, that's that's more than triple the content you get in one comic for way less than triple the cost. Yeah, and it's really cool. I love that Image is taking a chance like this and saying, well, look, I mean, we'll put one out every three months, and if you like it, you like it. And so far, it's gotten a bunch of great buzz. It's totally worth the price of admission. I thought this was awesome. 
agree. So that is a buy it and a skim it for diesel number one and a double buy it for headlopper number one. As always, we you very specialized swordsman thought of these comics. So hack off our heads and cram your opinions down our neck at the THN forums by clicking the forum button at TwoHeadedNerd.com. Stephen Colbert made his return to late night TV this week, taking the reins of the late show from David Letterman. And of course, there was much rejoicing. Matt and I thought the new show was fine, but found ourselves missing the ridiculous flag-waving eagle-riding pundit we came to love on Comedy Central. So as always, we'll be taking matters into our own hands and journeying into the microverse to seek the aid of the Psycho Man and his control device. Where else do you go when you're not sure what you think about a late-night TV show? Really? (laughs) Obviously. From there, we'll streak out of the microverse in Psycho Man's ship to the CBS Late Show studio, where we'll be able to slip into Colbert's ear unnoticed and wipe his real persona clean, leaving only the patriotic madman we remember all while we review 10 more of this week's comics during the Ludicrous Speed Round. Ludicrous Speed, go! Holy f***. Number one from Action Lab, Danger Zone. The story of the cutest holy gay couple in comics returns. Of course, I'm talking about the super macho, ripped up, gorgeous Jesus Christ and the pudgy but cute and sweet Satan. Who remember and loved holy f**k will want to jump right back into the sacrilegious fun here with the story of Jesus and Satan's pregnancy, complete with full frontal nude Jesus and wicked skateboard tricks. This one has got it all, but... It is not for the even remotely conservative. Trust me here, okay? Me, I laughed out loud and even found the story to be sweet. I'm giving it a buy it. Star Wars Shattered Empire, number one from Marvel. Greg Rucka and Marco Cheese Cheeto bring us the first proper post-Return of the Jedi story in the new Star Wars canon. That might not be true, but I'm not going to fact check it, so deal with it. I feel like 50% of what you find is going to say yes and no. So. <laughs> yeah. Here, we're introduced to a pair of characters that will have a huge impact on The Force Awakens as we see the final run against the Death Star from a new angle. I loved this. Edo's art is stunning. This is a must-read for Star Wars fans. Buy it. Faster Than Light, number one, from Image slash Shadowline. Yes, Shadowline is still an imprint at Image. I wasn't aware either. And here, they're publishing writer and artist Brian Haberlin's story of humanity's first Faster Than Light space mission. It's very well written and obviously influenced by the best of 80s science fiction out there. Haberlin's art isn't amazing, but it works very well for this realistic and very well-fleshed-out story about a space mission that takes an unexpected turn, giving it a buy it. Atomic Robo in the Ring of Fire, number one from IDW. I know I've gone on the record as a big Atomic Robo fan, and I'm always happy when Brian Clevenger and Scott Wegener come out with a new storyline. But this was the first time I really felt penalized for being behind on my reading. Even summing up the plot spoils the events of past stories, which is a real bummer, because being able to pick up any volume of Atomic Robo and enjoy it is one of the series' main selling points. There's no way I can recommend this to a new reader, so I have to give it a skimmit. See, I feel like I have to give Joe Patrick a skimmit here, because it's his fault for being behind, you know? Fair enough, I guess. (laughs) I really liked it. I thought it was fun. Alice, 
versus Chaos, number one from Dynamite. Legendary Chaos writer Tim Seeley returns alongside artist Jim Terry to tell the chaos story that had to be told. Alice Cooper versus Chaos. Cooper by day is a rock star and scratch golfer we all know and love, but by night, he becomes the king of nightmares. I'm not sure where this one is going, but it looks like Coop is looking for his successor, and it might be one of the Chaos crew. Bad art, dick and fart humor, along with cheesy, overblown demonic dialogue, it's everything you've come to expect from Dynamite's Chaos line, and I still don't understand the draw. Leave it. Super Angry Birds, number one from IDW. World-class writer Jeff Parker and legendary artist Ron Randall focus their considerable on the single dumbest thing (laughs) I've read in a long time. Even for a kid's book, if you like uncomfortably anthropomorphized birds acting like a cross between superheroes and a street gang, then this is the book for you. If not, leave it. See, I I feel like they made this just for me. Yeah, I hope Parker and Randall laughed all the way to the bank. (laughs) Batman 44 from DC. Writer Brian Azzarello teams with Scott Snyder for this flashback story that takes place after the Year Zero storyline. So you got that? It's a flashback that takes place after Year Zero. Jock is on art, and he's stunning as always, interspersing his thin line spastic art style Gotham Gazette newspaper clippings to amazing effect. I get a little tired of Snyder's constant third-person bat narration, but it worked here to tell the story of a drug dealer selling a formula based on Kurt Connor's man-bat serum and Bane's venom. Nice twist in the end, and just a solid one-shot bat story. I'm giving it a buy it. Mirror's Edge, Exordium, number one from Dark Horse. They made that word up. Yeah. (laughs) Mirror's Edge is the sort of game where you're good to go with just the most basic hint of a premise. I love the game on which this is based, but I'm not sure that I'm that interested in the world enough to bother learning more. I mean, it's not Bioshock. No, the world of Mirror's Edge is pretty simple. Trying to translate the game's almost minimalist design doesn't do the art any favors either. I'll stick to just jumping around rooftops with my mad parkour skills. Thank you. Leave it. We call it free running here in the States. Thank you. Tet number one from IDW. Writer Paul Aller and artist Paul Tucker tell the story of an American GI investigating a murder with a Vietnamese cop on the eve of the Tet Offensive. It's a very well-researched and written story that takes place before and after the Vietnam War in flashbacks. The art left a little to be desired, but also gave the comic a very 1970s war feel. Normally, war comics don't do it for me, but I really enjoyed this. And Tucker's colors are far more impressive than his pencils and really gave the comic a cool feel. Give this a buy it. Moonstreak, number one from Guardian Knight. Guardian Knight returns with a sci-fi superhero action story about a young stringer. I learned that word from the comic Stringers. Okay. Named Veronica that uncovers a secret experiment while watching a battle on the streets. I thought this was an interesting premise with decent art by Harvey Tolabau, hampered by some rough dialogue from Austin Rogers and Wes Hartman, and a laughable cast of villains that seemed like they stepped out of the cops cartoon show from the <laughs> 80s. Or it's a little mustache twiddling going on here. Or? They were pretty silly. Not great, but kind of fun. I'm giving it a skim it. All right. That is your ludicrous speed round, and Trick Landed is the sound of Jesus shredding on his skateboard, as seen in Holy F*** number one 
Remember, Jesus loves your opinions and so do we. So head over to the This Week's Comics section of the THN forums and tell us about all the new comics you read. <laughs> Everywhere Jesus would skateboard, he'd like do something, he'd, like leap off his board and land on it, and the sound would be like, totally radical. That's <laughs> 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 great. Here on THN, we wear our love of bad guys, villains, and near-do-wells plainly on our shared sleeves. So, it was with great surprise to hear from Harry Potter creator J.K. Rowling herself that we, along with the rest of the villain-loving nerd community, had been pronouncing Voldemort's name wrong for years. According to Rowling, it is pronounced Voldemort. The T is silent. We sat, and there's an R in there? Yeah. We sat down... Well, yeah, Voldemort. Voldemort? Voldemort. We sat down with the Dark Lord of the Death Eaters, who's not dead, by the way, this week in the THN Sanctum Sanctorum to apologize for our pronunciation gaffe, talk some black magic, and have some snakes whisper to us the secrets of next week's comics. Joey, what do these serpents have you excited to read? Next week, I'm excited to read the paybacks, number one, from Dark Horse. Written by the aforementioned Donny Cates and Elliot Rahal, with art by Jeff Shaw. Here's your solicit. Heroism doesn't come cheap. So when superheroes borrow money to finance their genetic enhancements or crime-fighting supercomputers, their debts make student loans look like IOUs. Enter the Paybacks, a repo squad composed of bankrupt former heroes here to foreclose on everybody's secret lairs. This is from the team that delivered the acclaimed buzzkill minus 100% of Toadies members. Oh, that's right. I forgot from the Toadies. <laughs> I forgot about that. So this is I, like the Jude Law movie Repo Men with superheroes, basically. So Yeah, kind of. Okay. Uh, I loved buzzkill. In fact, I think I gave it my favorite miniseries Beppo that year. I believe that is correct. And this sounds amazing. Repo men that repo like your Batmobile if you can't make the payments. <laughs> Hilarious. I love it. Matt Bomb, what are you picking next week? My pick is Tokyo Ghost, number one from Image, written by Rick Remender, with art by Sean Murphy. 32 pages, 350. Here's your solicit. The Isle of Los Angeles, 2089. Humanity is addicted to technology. A population of unemployed leisure seekers, blissfully distracted from toxic contamination, who borrow, steal, and kill to buy their next digital fix. Getting a virtual buzz is the only thing left to live for. It's the biggest industry, the only industry, the drug everyone needs, and gangsters run it all. And who do these gangsters turn to when they need their rule enforced? Constables Lead Dent and Debbie Decay. This duo is about to be given a job that will force them out of the familiar... Sounds like a roller derby team. Kind of, right? This duo is about to be given a job that will force them out of the familiar squalor of Los Angeles to take down the last techless country on Earth, the Garden Nation of Tokyo. Sean Murphy, Rick Remender, I'm in. I don't care. I don't care what it's about. I looked at the cover, saw a picture of something that looks like a motorcycle with two people on it that Sean Murphy drew, and I was sold. That was it. <laughs> the guy's art oh, yeah. is so amazing. And this is going to be him going completely nuts. It looks like it's got a little bit of uh, manga flavor to it. Not like cartoony manga, but like the hyper detailed type stuff that we looked at in like Pluto when we, re when we reviewed that a couple weeks ago. This looks amazing. I can't wait for yeah, it. Yeah, looks super cool. I'm excited to read it. The THN trade of the week is Step Aside Pops, a Hark of Vagrant collection hardcover from Drawn and Quarterly, written and drawn by Kate Beaton. It's 160 pages, 
for nineteen ninety nine. They're giving hardcover. it away. They're giving it That's away. Great price for a hardcover. Here's the solicit. Ida B. Wells, the Black Prince, and Benito Juarez burst off the pages of Step Aside, Pops. Armed with modern-sounding quips and amusingly on-point repartee, Kate Beaton's second Drawn and Quarterly book brings her hysterically funny gaze to bear on these historical, literary, and contemporary figures. Irreverently funny and carefully researched, no target is safe from Beaton's incisive wit. In these satirical strips, Beaton returns with a refined pen ready to make jokes at the expense of hunks, army generals, scientists, and Canadians in equal measure. With a few carefully placed lines, Beaton captures the -the over-the-top evil of the straw feminists in the closet, the disgruntled dismay of Heathcliff, and Wonder Woman's all-conquering ennui. (laughs) Hark of Vagrant is amazing. It's heady, it's it's funny, it's poignant. It's a webcomic that takes actual historical events. Kate Beaton is a historian by trade or by training who got into comics so all of her comics are about actual historic events or like literary works. Right. And just skewed through this hysterical lens. Well, it's sort of like it's like historical graffiti. Like if someone went into historical of. went into historical books and just wrote new stuff. <laughs> that was completely bizarre. <laughs> uh, they mentioned the Wonder Woman strips in here. Uh, those few Wonder Woman strips that she did in Harka Vagrant where Wonder Woman just decides, you know what? I'm sick of helping you bozos. I'm in it for me now. <laughs> I am absolutely going to pick this up. Dude. I picked up the first Harka Vagrant volume. It's a steal at 20 bucks. Don't pass it up. Yeah, they're big, they're sexy, and it'll look great on your... Huge thanks to Lord Voldemort for being so understanding and bringing his snake friends by. I had no idea how much editing they did in those Potter movies to make that kid look like a good guy. Jesus. Now... Slither over to the THN forums and let us know what you are excited to read next week. Once a month, Matt and I like to reach deep into the THN mailbag and pull out a thought-provoking question worth discussing for a little segment we call Ask a Nerd. Today, we'll be playing with the little understood and highly complex field of comic book physics. Thanks to this question from THN forums stalwart Black Scorpion the Three. Matt, let's put on our lab coat and break out the chalkboard. BS3 writes, I don't understand how carrying things while flying works. I'm not talking about people with wings. I mean, the people with innate flying ability, like Captain Marvel or Superman. The act of flying doesn't seem to involve any kind of physical exertion. Those heroes can fly indefinitely without getting tired. But when it comes to carrying things, I'm confused. Flight isn't a lifting exercise of physical muscle. So, dot, dot, dot. (laughs) Why is it that sometimes there is a strain in flying with something and sometimes there isn't? At what point is the flyer using strength to propel another object into the air? And at what point is the flyer's ability negating the weight slash gravity of an object? Whoa. I know. it It gets deeper. How do flying characters lift or push against other things in the air? If a flyer without invulnerability pushes against a plane, aren't they just crushing themselves against the side of it? 
<laughs> we don't have an idea of how strong the thrust and propulsion of flyers would be. The only explanation I've read came from Irredeemable. There, the Plutonian was manipulating matter around him to slip through the air like a wet bar of soap. That matter-manipulating ability, though, is unique to him. So, let's Wilders. take this in parts. And we're going okay. to deal, deal with the two that he named, Captain Marvel and Superman. Because they well, have- I, have an e- I have an easy explanation for why they are not bothered while carrying things while flying. They both have super strength. Well, yes. But, I mean, I understand what he's saying in the sense that, like, you have super strength, but that means when you're standing on the ground... And you pick something up, you are, you know, using the gravity of the earth and the solidity of the ground below you to exert your strength. When you're in the when you're in the air and you grab, you know, a dinosaur or whatever, like what how are you holding it up? Are you negating its gravity? Is, is your flight strength like farting harder? You know what I mean? Like to hold you no, up? You're pulling it off the ground with your Superman muscles. I get that. But then at that point, you're flying. So you're not, Wait, you got you to think of the physics of it here, right? Uh, but do you think he is, do you think his other muscles get less effective just because he's not standing on the ground? That's not necessarily what we're saying here. What we're talking about is the flying, okay? So at what point is the flyer using strength to propel another object into the air? And at what point is the flyer's ability negating weight or the gravity of the object? So Superman, obviously, he's walking around, picks up a bus with one hand, no problem. But if he flies yeah. away with said bus, the muscles in his wrist are supporting it, sure. But is his flight powers negating the gravity of the bus? Because he's not pushing on anything to hold it up anymore. He's just in the air. Well, he's pushing on the bus. I guess. Well, here's the thing. Let's let's get into Superman's powers. And I had to look this up. I honestly did not know it, how it Superman be, flew. It should be made clear that Matt and I are not physicists. We're comic book physicists. We've already discussed this. Okay, so according to the Superman Powers Wiki, because Earth exhibits less gravitational pull than that of Krypton, and also due to his solar-powered body, the Man of Steel can also alter his personal monodirectional gravity field to propel himself through the air at will. Originally, he only had the power to jump great distances, as stated by, you know, the cartoon slogan, leap tall buildings, yada, yada, yada. This was also shown in the movie Man of Steel. His power of flight has ranged from simply being able to jump great distances using vast strength to being able to accelerate, float in midair, and change direction while traveling. Later, he became able to traverse interstellar distances, yada, 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 so on and so forth. So he is using a monodirectional gravity field to propel himself. So sort of like Plutonian, he's like slipping, you know, through gravity. He creates his own little gravitational field where he negates gravity of Earth or whatever planet he's on, which enables him to fly around. I mean, obviously, there's something going on there with flyers that is not strength based. Well, exactly. um, and that's where the gravity Whether comes you in. consider that a, a psychic ability or, or some other kind of physical ability. Well, that's uh, that's, I that's think what I'm you, saying here. I'm saying Superman, because he can he has his personal monodirectional gravity field, <laughs> he is using that to create the gravity that he needs to exert the strength to lift something in midair. And I don't agree. I don't think that he's, I don't think his power of flight, whatever, whatever allows him to fly, I don't think that he's extending that to anything that he's carrying. I'm not saying he's extending it. I'm saying 
I think he's picture. using his strength to hold up an item and then flying with it. Okay, picture for a moment Ben Grimm, who can't fly, picks up a bus standing on the street. Everything's fine. Now picture Ben Grimm is on a rope bridge and carries a bus onto it. The bridge gives out and he falls. That's what I'm saying. If you don't have something under you to support whatever is going on, then there is no action of lifting. You just fall with whatever you're holding. So because he's flying and holding something, there has to be something involved with his flight power that's keeping him up. In the meantime, yes, he has to have strong Superman muscles to hold whatever, but there's got to be something below you, you know, to either propel you or keep you floating there. That would be his well, gravitational field. Right. Or whatever. I, I think you're overthinking it. You're, you're overthinking it. Like the, the idea that Superman's not on the ground has no bearing on his ability to lift things because Superman can be off the ground whenever he wants. Right. He has that ability. Because, yes. So if you want to imagine that when Superman is picking up a dinosaur and lifting it into the air, imagine that there is an invisible floor that Superman is standing on if, if you must. But really, Superman is just doing it because he can. Yeah. And like in the in his question where he says, uh, how do flying characters lift or push against other things? If a flyer without invulnerability pushes against a plane, aren't they just crushing themselves against the side of it? Well, yes. Well, that's... But that's Superman all, all... is like Superman. So he's strong enough that he can use his flight ability and his super muscles to say guide a plane in that has an right. engine down or something well and also like there's all sorts of other physics concerns with like the whole plane catching thing if you are a character that can fly but do not possess invulnerability you're probably not going to jump in front of any planes no exactly like angel for example is not going to flap his wings and go <laughs> right push on the but side of the plane and <laughs> change its course right but at the very least, you know, you have to consider about like matching the plane's speed before you you try to touch it and things like that. Because, yeah, like if you're not matching the plane's speed and you fly up there and you're like, all right, I'm just going to go hop on this plane in midair. Right. Then it's going it's to demolish you. <laughs> Theoretically, I suppose. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm just I'm going to go ahead and say like, yeah, there's a huge risk in in trying to fly up and catch a plane. That is not a risk Superman is worried about because he's f***ing Superman. Right. And the same with Carol Danvers with Captain Marvel. She has, like, powers that she received as binary, which gave, enabled her to fly and, you know, distort gravity and shoot bolts out of her hands. And even though she lost the binary power, she still has some of those abilities. She can still shoot energy from her hands. She can fly. She's super strong. Same type thing. So these both these characters are creating a little gravity well for themselves to draw on, which allows them to fly, land, carry things while flying, and throw things, and so on and so forth. Catch things and change the direction and, of things because of their power set. There's not a guy with wings. This isn't Dragon. I, ha I have to reiterate, though, in my opinion, I don't believe that Captain Marvel's ability to negate her own gravity has anything to do with her ability to pick up something while she's flying? No. It, in the, but what it does is she enable is her to... She is not negating the gravity of that object. And that's not what I'm saying. She's creating her own gravity well that, that allows her to fly, and while flying, she also has super strength. 
Right, exactly. That's what so I'm like, saying. So, like, if we were to if we were to take a character that can fly that does not have super strength, like Banshee, um, sure, Banshee or um, a Zephyr from from Harbinger. See, now you're just showing off. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. We were talking about Valiant earlier. That's why she was on my mind. Okay. It would be a struggle for her to carry somebody while she flies. Right. It would have to be because she doesn't right. have super strength. Banshee, uh, even though he is a very fit man, uh, obviously trained, highly trained by the X-Men, you know, he can't carry an infinite amount of weight while he's flying just because he can fly. No. Like, it's difficult for him. Like, he, so his, he's grabbing his someone by the wrist and they're hanging under him, literally. Oh, right. Yeah. And that's a, yeah, that's a whole other thing is like, how, how can Banshee support that weight? Like, is he strong enough to heft the person in his arms, officer and gentleman style? I mean, I guess if... Or does he just like to grab him by the wrist and have him trail underneath him? Yeah, I mean, like, I guess that depends on how often he hits the gym, you know, because... And also, he's screaming, too, so it would be a really annoying ride. (laughs) Uh, Do not fly with Banshee. Just don't do it. Don't do it. Now, (laughs) there is a very different take on this ability uh, when you are talking about the character of Superboy. And I don't know about Superboy's current status quo. He's a clone. He's an evil clone. He's from the future. I don't f-ing know. New 52 <laughs> Superboy is out. Yeah. I'm talking about the 90s era earring in the ear clone Superboy. Jean jacket, fingerless gloves. Don't forget. Yeah, right. Straps for no reason on everything. <laughs> what was ultimately revealed about his power set because they could not accurately replicate Kryptonian DNA They had to tweak his abilities, and his abilities are not physical in nature at all. They're all mental. He's telekinetic. What they called it was tactile telekinesis, which means that he couldn't, like, pick up a bus with his mind from 10 feet away. But if he went over there and touched that bus, he could pick it up no problem. Right. It extended to what his his telekinetic field around his body extended to whatever he touched. Right. Whereas, like, Jean Grey could just walk could fly through the air by lifting herself and then point at a bus and lift that up too and she's not even superhumanly strong she just has very strong telekinesis it's all in her gourd and so yeah as superboy if you are facing a bad guy with a terrifying laser gun and you place your hand on the end of the barrel without even thinking about it well he's obviously thinking about it but without struggling uh, he just dismantles that gun, like takes it apart into its components. Right. If while he's flying, he wants to carry a bus full of school children or whatever, all he's got to do is be in contact with it. And his his mental field extends to that object. And then he mentally propels it through the air along with his own body. Right. So that's a very different way of going about it. Strength doesn't enter into it at all. So but in a nutshell, to try and sum this up. In a nutshell, from what we've discussed, characters like Superman and Captain Marvel, super strong, basically invulnerable, and can fly due to their own little gravity field thing that they do, which is what enables them, the, the mixture of the three enables them to do stuff in the air, like rescue a helicopter or fly a bad guy up into space or right. catch the they're Statue u- of Liberty that's being thrown at them, you know? <laughs> right, they're using a, a combination of, of skills. Yes, so, because now, comic book science, there you go. <laughs> right, but I do think, I do think to, to kind of back up Black Scorpion's confusion, 
I do think that comic writers and artists cheat a little when they depict flying characters just carrying things without trouble. Oh, definitely. Definitely. Because they're not always thinking, like, should this character be able to do this? Right. Like, it's case-by-case basis. Like, sometimes Superman sets an aircraft carrier down with the greatest of ease, and other times, like, oh, man, this tow truck's heavier than I thought it was. (laughs) Right. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Wait a minute. (laughs) He's really grunting. Yeah. (laughs) It's obviously abused on a case-by-case basis, but what can you do? Everything in comic books is. Thank you very much, Black Scorpion, for contributing this question. And if you've got a question about superpowers or any other comic-related minutia, you can drop us an email with the subject line, Ask a Nerd. Post it under the Ask a Nerd section of the THN forums or call us at 402-819-4894 and leave us a message. I would like to get into a discussion of does the thing eat and what does he eat and what happens to it when he eats. (laughs) I think that would be a really interesting discussion. I think that the thing's internal biology operates exactly the same as it used to, just like on a way scarier level. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Like, I think he still eats. I think he still probably poops. (laughs) How does he wipe? Or does he just hose him down afterwards? (laughs) Hops right in the shower, man. (laughs) Sort of of, break it it down like this. And that is it for the separated but equal episode of THN. If you did host that one. Whoa, whoa. What? Tread lightly. We're separated. That's all I mean. Come on. Uh Yeah. (laughs) If you dig hosts that would rather talk about comics and hang out with rock stars, you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or TuneIn. And while you're there, you can leave us your star ratings, your reviews, your thumbs up, your little hearts, because it helps us to connect with other potential listeners. Thank you to all of our donors. And if you want to help support THN, you can do so by clicking our PayPal button at TwoHeadedNerd.com. If you want to become a sustaining member, it's as easy as clicking the Make This Donation Monthly box. And as little as a dollar a month really does help. If you're interested in sponsoring THN, shoot us an email with the subject line, Sponsorship. If enough of you sponsor us, next year, we'll be able to record live at Riot Fest. That would be awesome. Joe could be right here in the back of the bus with me. It'd be so cool. Yeah. <laughs> While you are at TwoHeadedNerd.com, you can find links to all of our contact info via Twitter, YouTube, Facebook, Tumblr, Skype, and the Ziggurat Hotline, 402-819-4894. Also, don't forget to go sign up for the THN forums, kids. It's your little virtual piece of the Ziggurat where you can discuss this week's show. You can ask us to review your self-published You can learn more about all of our crazy segments and how you can be a part of them. You could be internet famous, just like Black Scorpion the Three. Or you can just go there and rap about comics. If you dig the music you hear on the show, you can follow our soundtrack playlist on Spotify by searching for Matt Bomb's Spotify profile. Before we go, our weekly shout-out goes to high crimes writer Christopher Sabella. Remember that prose project he mentioned when we interviewed him? It was breaking news. He was able to fully fund the book through Kickstarter in just four hours, which means he's got to spend a month living and writing in the walking nightmare called the Clown Motel. (laughs) And it is terrifying for our enjoyment. Word to you, sir. And be careful out there. Until next time, true believers, remember to pre-order your comics because your retailer might just have to start moonlighting as a rodeo clown if you don't. This is the Two-Headed Nerd signing off. Let me tell you, rodeo clowning, serious business. It is dangerous. I'll tell you what. Papa was a rodeo, mama.
was a rock and roll band I could play guitar 